Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ubud Writers and Readers Festival 2021. This year, the festival returns with the theme Mulat Sahira, self-reflection, which is drawn from a Balinese Hindu philosophy. From the 8th to the 17th of October, we'll explore the meaning of self-reflection, cultural introspection, and human rights, examining who we are, what unites and divides us, and what drives our actions. My name is Michael Vatikiotis. I've been moderating and appearing at the Ubud Festival since its inception, and I'm very happy to be here online. And I'm extremely honored and pleased to introduce Andre Eichmann, who is um, a novelist, a scholar of literature, and like me, um, a product of the Levantine world in the Middle East, which is something that we'll discuss. He was born in Alexandria to an, a family of Italians who originally were from Turkey and who had a Jewish affiliation, but of course not necessarily conviction. And this whole melange of identity and religion is something that is running throughout the Levantine world and the people that were born there and we're forced to disperse and how what we'd like to perhaps look at today is how that affected not just the thinking and writing but also a way of life for those of us who were forced to disperse in a world that today is full of migrants more migrants than we care to think about this is a historical migration to the middle east and then away from the middle east by force that we might also explore in this conversation today. But what I'd like to do to begin with is start with Andre's um, new collection of essays. And, and I must say how, what a luxury to be able to write a collection of essays. Um, in today's publishing world, um, the luxury to be able to sit and reflect in writing on issues of culture and literature and time and space. Um, and, and as I sat down to read them, I, I, ref, I was, it was with a great deal of envy um, and also appreciation for the ability to actually not have to read a story, not have to follow a plot line and, and not feel compelled um, to decide whether a narrative um, was, was, was keeping me uh, engaged or not. When what was keeping me engaged were the ideas and the illusions and the parallels that you were drawing of the world that you inhabit and that you see. Uh, and I thought that was just, I, it was just an extreme, extreme form of luxury, I thought. <laughs> um, so Andre, I'd like to start with the title, Homo Irrealis, because I, I saw various, and I read in the course of the book, lots of definitions of, of this concept of space and time in the present tense, 
and how it's defined in fiction. And as someone who's written a bit of fiction as well, I have to say I completely associated myself with your thoughts because as a journalist, you write about facts and reality. And as a, as a writer of fiction, you have to first of all imagine those facts and confect that reality, which gives you this ability, I suppose, to play around with the tenses. Um, and, and therefore, if, if you could sort of explain to everyone what you mean by the irrealis mood, the, um, and it's hard even to translate into something a bit more um, uh, down to earth, but perhaps you could, um, you could begin with that. Okay. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Um, the, the idea of the irrealis mood or moods is that it exists in languages, most all languages have a past, a present, and a future tense. Some work around not having those. But I was particularly interested not in the past or in the future, but in what is known as the conditional mood. In other words, the would have been, the might have been, the should have been, which obviously means that, and the irrealis moods are precisely about that, things that never happened. So it's how you live, most of us live every day, minute by minute, not in with what is happening around us, but what we would have preferred to have happened, what we wish might happen, what we fantasize. If you think of the time we spent with our fantasies or with the simple thing where you meet someone and you say, I should have said that, I should have done that, why didn't I do that? I might have been someone else, I might have done something else. Um, when you grow up in a place that you are kicked out of, you are always going to be filled with why didn't we see what was happening to us? Why didn't we react sooner than later? And so on and so forth. It's this dimension of time which never takes place because it cannot take place. But we live in it. And so what I was trying to do in my book, Homo Irealis, was to explore how this non-existent time zone existed for painters, movie directors, composers, psychiatrists, and so on and so forth. And so I wrote an essay with that one sentence in each one. The might have been that never happened, but that we wished had happened and might still happen, though we know it doesn't. I can repeat that sentence a million times because I've written it so many times without ever realizing at first that I was actually entering into this strange domain that has no name. I think that's the shortest answer I can give you. And the way that you've done it in the book is you've taken places, you've yes. taken situations regarding people um, and, you know, passion and, and, and love and despair. You've taken music um, and you've taken film and you've taken all these different mediums in which to explore this conditional um, tense. What I was most interested in, and I felt drawn towards, perhaps because of, as you said earlier, the, the root of this being your displacement. Um, and I also feel this great sense of displacement. Was, and the, what really drew me in was, was the initial opening chapters on Rome, uh, essay on Rome. Because it, you know, we can relate to that as, as someone, as we both have Italian roots. 
you say everything in Rome has something to do with the past. Um, and that's such a great way of introducing this because you also point out that the people of Rome don't, don't necessarily live with that past. They live in the present, but they're aware of the past. Um, and, you know, I just thought it was such a good way into this because it is one of the oldest, most ancient places in our sort of present civilization. Um, and yet, as you point out, contemporary Rome is a contemporary living city with all of its moods and, and trends and, and fads. Um, and it was such a good way of describing it initially that, you know, yes, there was this amazing past that almost has nothing to do with the present. Um, and yet, with all the waypoints that you, you identified in your own childhood, presumably having arrived from Alexandria in Rome, displaced from Egypt to Rome, that also made this a very conscious thing for you, right? Yes, yes, it had to be. Um, I mean, I was not, a, I didn't even like Rome when I first arrived there. I was a foreigner. I didn't speak Italian very well. Um, I didn't even want to like Rome. I couldn't care less about the monuments. I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to be courted by this city that has such a distinctive past that it would suck me in. And eventually it does, but it took a while. And my resistance was essentially something that was refusing the present tense. So I would shut myself up in a room, shut the shutters even so that the light would not come in. And I would read novels by the great writers. And that's all I did in Rome was to essentially take a peek outside the window and then close the window right away and just either do my homework, go to school or and read novels. That's we didn't even have a television. So there was this kind of hermetic ceiling, which eventually Rome broke through. And and I love the story. And that's what I'm writing right now. It's the story of my years in Rome, my three short years in Rome, where essentially I was an adolescent. I was discovering what it means to be an adolescent, but also what it means to be a displaced person. Uh, one of the things that interests me the most, and I'm sure it doesn't interest everybody, is at what point do you realize that you have memories? In other words, when do those memories begin to strike you? They don't do that when you're a child. Uh, they're, they're not that powerful. It's when you lose something that you begin to anticipate having that memory again and again and again. Then that's when you become, in my case, that's how I became an author, because it was memory that essentially was hounding so here I am in Rome, and I'm remembering Alexandria, and I know I'm going to lose Rome. So I'm bidding farewell to Rome from the moment I arrive there. Happy to leave, no longer happy to leave, undecided whether I like Rome or not. And it's this kind of melange of, that has been my whole life, is not knowing if I belong somewhere or don't belong somewhere, is belonging height, as I like to call it, something that exists or doesn't exist or will never exist. So I'm, I'm kind of constantly floating between all these things. And there is Rome, which is a city that has so many layers that you're sucked into them. You begin to think of yourself, as did Freud, of having so many layers inside of us, and they keep shifting. You know, the oldest one comes up to the fore, the, the newest goes down below, but it comes back again, and everything is constantly shifting. So Rome is, in fact, the perfect metaphor, as Freud knew. 
Why Freud? I mean, I, I know this is quite a well-known story, but for the benefit of the audience, I mean, explain this whole you know story of Freud and his longing for an eventual discovery, Sigmund Freud, his longing for an eventual discovery of Rome. Well, um, well there are two, two different strands to the story. On one hand, Freud was someone who always wanted to go to Rome and yet managed to go to south of Rome, east of Rome, always managed to avoid going to Rome. In that respect, he's very much like Hannibal, who arrives at the gates of Rome and then decides not to invade Rome and, of course, changes history at that point. Uh, eventually, Freud does go to Rome. And then he discovers, and that's the second strand, the most famous one, is that he discovers that Rome is filled with antiquities, but not just the old, but the reconstruction of the old done in antiquity. In other words, there are already several layers before Christ that already were in existence. So what we uncover in Rome are different layers, and these layers are constantly shuffling. And so, and Freud was amazed with this because he said, how can, you know, the stones of one building be taken out of that building to build a new building? And then at the same time, you realize that the old building has left an imprint and the new building sort of has moved that imprint, but hasn't quite stolen it. So you have two different time zones in existence at the same time. That is impossible. And, and Freud realizes that's impossible, but that's exactly how the ego and the superego and the id work with each other. They're constantly shifting. I want to go back to the point that you made earlier about your own journey. And mm -hmm. you said at some point in the book, I think you were in fact quoting someone else, that um, uh, Home, you said a writer had recently um, said in something that you read, is where you first put words to the world. Yes. Um, we all have a way of placing markers on our lives. And, and at this point, let's, let's, take, let's take the audience to Alexandria, um, where you were born and raised, which is the city on the northern coast of Egypt, on the, on the Nile Delta, on the edge of the Nile Delta, one of the most ancient coastal cities in the Mediterranean, um, which has a long history of settlement going back to, you know, the Egyptians, the, the Greeks, the Romans, and the history is reasonably well known. But less well known, perhaps, is the is the Levantine period, where from the mid 19th century onwards, um, huge numbers of Europeans arrived on the shores um, of Egypt um, to take up professions, business, right. and did quite well, uh, including your family and 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 my Italian family. And you know what I've noticed is that this this is inflecting at least how many knowledge and i know that you're in new york in new york which is why we're hearing all the sirens um, <laughs> uh, and there's nothing you can do about it so i'm not going to no. say <laughs> uh, but you know this this whole issue of alexandria and its history and for those who lived in that wonderful halcyon period um from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century in fact, you stayed on longer than most because your family, I believe, left in the 1960s, which was... That's correct, yes. Um, but I wonder if you could sort of describe, and this brings us on to your, for me, at least my favorite book of yours, Out of Egypt, because it is so biographical and so passionate. Um, you know, the, 
the sense in which that really is a lost world. And I know that you've said that, you know, in fact, I sense that you go back and forth. It's lost, but it's still present. It's present in your mind. It's present in the minds of all the people who live there. It's even present when you go there today because the stones are still in place. The, the, the form of Alexandria hasn't changed that much. I mean, it's crumbling, but it's still there. Um, so let's, let's explore that a little bit because I sense that there's a, there's a real uh, ambivalence in, in the way you write about it. It's lost, but it's also still present. Well, it, it never leaves. Uh, uh, of course, let me start by saying that if you speak to anyone in my family, as I'm sure there are people in your family, when you mention the word Alexandria, they will turn to you and say suddenly, oh, but you need to forget that. That's the past. Let's go on. We're in the present here. And so you deal with that kind of resistance, which, you know, I've incorporated too. There's a part of me that's still nostalgic for a life that could not possibly exist anymore, especially for people who are Jewish. There are almost, I would say, about, what, seven Jews left in all of uh, Alex uh, Egypt, which is a, a ridiculous number. So they've all gone. And, um, and so they... they they reside there as a memory for the Egyptians. But as far as I'm concerned, I am still an Alexandrian, but I belong to an Alexandria that no longer exists. I mean, I'm talking about Empire Alexandria, the British Empire, and before that, the Ottoman Empire, of which I'm also a product. So these days are totally gone. Uh, the days of nationalism did not exist when I was growing up, or at least when my parents were there and were thriving. Uh, but nevertheless, you leave Alexandria, you know you've lost something, but you don't know what it is. And that's what I meant by the, the sort of the, the stirring up of memory. It's that you are constantly trying to articulate as a writer, you know, what is it that has changed? What is it that you lost? What is it that maybe you want to go back to, though you know it's impossible? And so this city is becoming like a floating island. It has moments in the past, moments in an idealized future, which I call the conditional, and moments that clearly no longer happen. And, and I think that's the story of Alexandria itself. From its very inception, it was created artificially. It is the first grid city that ever existed on the planet of Earth. You know, in other words, the grid is, you know, like sort of perpendicular lines of streets moving. So it was it was a brilliant conception. And some of those streets, ironically enough, still exist today. So which doesn't make sense because most of Rome is not very much like ancient Rome or Athens is not like ancient Athens, but Alexandria, its grid still exists, which is ironic. But I am a product of it. I, I know I, I don't even speak Arabic very well any longer, though I grew up speaking Arabic. Um, it, everything is gone. And yet, what is it that subsists? And why does it come to revisit me? Why is it that when I walk past a falafel place, the smell takes me instantly back to my childhood. And there's nothing I can do about that. Do I like falafel? Not really any longer, but it stirs me up. And this, these, all these contradictions, which 
this is what I'm talking about today. It's all those paradoxes exist in one human being who's trying to come up with a narrative. But there is no narrative. Each narrative will change every day. I'd like to suggest that one of the things that that you're after here is, of course, there was an ideal sense of heterogeneity, of yes. mixing, and of, I hate to use the word tolerance, but it very much applied to that era. People didn't care. I mean, they knew who everyone was. And, and in your book, Out of Egypt, I love the sense of calibration, that everyone has their identity. They're all somehow connected, but they all have that specific um, form of identity in this great melting pot of, of Alexandria. And yes. yet that's gone. And of course, it's been replaced in much of the world by much harder forms of identity, you know, where what's celebrated is that you are of a singular identity, not of a multiple identity. And I feel that what passed in the mid 19th, in the mid, in the mid 20th century was in that part of the world was this ability, as my mother always used to put it, to mingle. Yes. And mingle without any consequences, really. I mean, in a privileged sense, obviously, but mostly to be able to mingle. And I, and I think that's why I like to call it the lost art of mingling, that you know, what's missing and what's gone is that. And those of us who, you lived it yourself, me rather more vicariously through my family, I did live in Egypt as a teenager because I went there in search of it. Um, and I think that's gone and it's missing. And what you, what you brought out in your description of Rome was almost a search for that in a place where it kind of doesn't exist. Yes. Um, and you were also searching for it later on in the book in St. Petersburg uh, and, and so on. And so I feel that it's this quest for what is lost that you've, you've kind of translated into time and space. And I, I mean, obviously not everyone's going to relate to that the way I do, but I just thought it was an amazing description of a sense of loss. Well, I mean, I, ironically or not ironically, the thing that I'm most uh, sort of drawn to as a subject is this, the idea, it's not really exile. Everybody thinks I'm in exile. Even people think I'm a nostalgist. It's not that. It's more that there's loss and the spirit of loss is inscribed in all of us. We've lost something. The best metaphor I can come up with is, you know, people who have, essentially never gone back to their home where they grew up or walking into the old school where you were a child and entering that room 60 years later, a part of you still is a child when you walk into that old classroom and you see the old desk hasn't moved. It still smells the same. These are the small things that determine what it is that we are, and how do we live with the spirit of loss? Some of us are more conscious of that loss because it has taken a temporal and a spatial character. In other words, I've lost Egypt, I've lost my childhood, I've lost the place where I grew up and where I was expected to keep growing up. That's also another form of truncation that spells the loss. In other words, the person you were supposed to be at the age of 20 never got to live because he had already been transplanted elsewhere. So all these things, it's always about loss. And I'm fascinated by the spirit of loss. And of course, I look for it everywhere. 
uh, I may have written an essay on, I know I did write an essay, on the small town of Bordighera in Italy, which uh, where Monet used to go and paint uh, plants and houses and so on. And in Bordighera, I discovered an old hotel, a very, very huge hotel where Queen Victoria was supposed to go, and she never did go. But it was a huge hotel. And as I'm looking at that hotel, it's all ramshackled. It's totally broken down. It might even easily be sort of grounded and sort of built all over again, or something else would come on the ground. But there it is. It's an old building, abandoned. The way... You know, W.G. Zebalt looks at old hotels because they reflect a world that has disappeared and gone out. And I'm looking at this building and I'm saying, why am I sort of transfixed by it? What is it that calls up to me something? And of course, as I'm looking at that old hotel, I'm thinking of the old buildings of Alexandria, which are in a semi-dilapidated state, and yet people still live in them. And God forbid they should even step into the balcony because that balcony won't hold them. Uh, and things like that. So I'm looking at everything and I'm seeing sort of the, the skeleton of something that used to exist. And to be honest, I go looking for that skeleton. I'm very good at sort of digging out the skeleton of something that used to be grand and rich and whatever. And of course, it's all a translation of my own childhood, uh, my lost world, as it were, that world of Alexandria. But it's so relevant to today, Andre, because I mean, think of the people oh, yes. from Aleppo and Homs and Damascus and Baghdad, all those people who've lost just as much because of what's happened in the last 20 years or more uh, through the wars that have taken place there. And now, They've clambered onto boats and tried yes. to end up in a better place. I mean, I reflect on that because our families got away with their lives and were able to establish a livelihood in Europe again because of our right. roots in Europe. These poor people from these grand old cities, Aleppo, Homs, Damascus, biblical cities, they lose everything. And then they arrive in a place you know, there's an interesting story about how the Syrians treated the Jewish refugees from Europe in the Second World War, some of whom went to Syria uh -huh. in the Second World War and were treated well. They were treated like guests. They were given jobs. And so and look what happens today to those people suffering a similar loss. Don't you feel privileged in a way? I think, yes, uh, uh, privileged or if you want to call it lucky. I haven't decided which of the two it is, but uh, we, uh, I mean, I left Egypt. Uh, I arrived in Italy dirt poor, with no money, nothing. Um, of course, I had family and who treated us abominably, but nevertheless, they gave us a lodging place. And, um, but it's, again, as you said, you said that we had connections abroad. But these were people who had themselves been transplanted and had settled in Europe and made lives for themselves in Europe. And, and, so, and so there is a sort of um, invisible network that will help you. The Syrians, however, did not have such a network. So they arrive, and uh, you've seen those pictures of people kicking them out of their land, uh, literally kicking them. Uh, because they don't want to have them. 
So yes, go drown. I don't care what happens to you, which is a terrible, terrible feeling to have. You never grow out of that, uh, that the way that you have not been allowed and finally tolerated to step in. You never forget how horrible it was. You will never live that down. But I was lucky. I mean, I, I have to say I had relatives who were mildly well off and they took care of us. And eventually they said, well, enough. Now you have to go to America. And I got to America and there again, I had family that hosted us for one month. After which we were said, find a job, do something. And we had to. My father did, my mother did, and I did. I had a job. So, uh, but it's also a wonderful thing to know that you're going to survive. These people who land in Europe, and we've seen them for at least, what, four years now, uh, five years, they arrive and they are, there's no option whatsoever. And I was once in Ventimiglia, which is right on the border between Italy and France. And if you go to the train station at Ventimiglia, you see loads of young uh, not Egyptians, they're mostly um, Tunisians and Libyans who are there just stranded, waiting to take a train that might sort of smuggle them into France. Uh, and it's a horrible thing to be, yeah. to be just totally lost. Transitioning to, to one of your novels, um, because as you mentioned, you then went from Rome to the United States. And what struck me about the, the the novel published in 2013, Harvard Square, was, and it, the, the storyline in that novel really spoke to me as well, because like you, my father, who was a refugee from Palestine, ended up going to the US, and because of course that was the place to go. That was yes. where, that was the land of opportunity. And, and yet it was so difficult to feel at home in the United States. People, for all the opportunity, for all the, the welcome even that people got as immigrants, it was such an unfamiliar place. Um, you know, my uncle in Rome always tells the story about the Italians from Egypt who went to Rome and were actually at an advantage because they spoke English in a country that spoke very little English. So they all got jobs in the travel industry and whatever. But, you know, for the for the people who went to the United States, yes, there was, there was a welcome and there was opportunity. As you point out in, in, in Harvard Square, there was also a sort of a problem fitting in oh, and, a, yes. and a need to associate. Um, and that's something that, that my father would speak about was, you know, he didn't quite feel that he was being accepted and nor did he try very hard because he <laughs> couldn't find anything familiar. Um, and so I wonder, you know, if, if that's what was, I mean, the character of uh, the student in Harvard, who who then builds an association and a friendship with the with the with the taxi driver from the Middle East, um, and and so therefore you know was trying to look for something to associate with. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes. <clears throat> when I arrived at Harvard, I was probably what twenty one years old. I had just started graduate school, and and I liked Harvard. I liked the the fact that it was or looked like a kind of mini um, Paris. It had all the features of Paris. 
that I was looking for. And there it was at Harvard Square. And uh, I lived there. And I arrived at Harvard and I realized, okay, it's a classroom like every other classroom I've been before, nothing new. Until I realized that there's a whole social apparatus at Harvard that I wasn't aware of at all. Because part of this is... Either as a foreigner, you are not seeing it, even though it's staring at you in the face, until I realized that everybody at Harvard at that time was exceptionally rich and wealthy, and that they had summer places, and that they had traveled to Europe and knew Europe better than I did, because that's where their family took them every year. And, and so they were extremely, what you might call, privileged and I was there, and I thought I was one of them because I was a student like everybody else, but I wasn't. And so part of me was saying, wait a minute, this is a fantastic, magical world, and I need to understand it. I would like to be accepted by it. And part of it is that I didn't have the means to be accepted. So I had to reinvent myself in a way that would allow me to have some sense of what I could offer these people that they didn't have. And what I could offer was my Italian, which by then had become quite okay, and my French. And I could also pretend that I was, you know, well off, but that I didn't want to show it. It was the only way to survive and be accepted by all those people who had social lives within Harvard. And so I was always invited to various parties, various get-togethers, where essentially you were admitted because people thought that you belonged to their circle. And here I am befriending a Middle Eastern taxi driver who speaks my language. He speaks my kind of French. He, he understands me the way I understand him. We know we are trying to survive. I can fake it because I'm a, I'm sort of a, I'm already teaching at Harvard, and he is a taxi driver. He cannot fake it, and so there is a kind of um, collision course that we're both running against each other because he's trying to become like me, more accepted in this little town called Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm already accepted there, but I'm scared that people might suspect that I'm not one of them, but more like my taxi driver friend. So I'm trying not to be seen with him, but I like him because he knows me, and I'm more intimate with him than I'm with everybody else that I meet. And eventually, of course, he gets deported from the United States, I am admitted into the, in the United States. I end up teaching at Princeton. I end up teaching at Bard College. I am totally admitted into this world. I end up becoming an author. And yet, deep down myself, I know that one of the best friends I've ever had in my whole life was this taxi driver. That's a great story, Andre, and I can totally relate to it. Um, speaking of intimacy, I mean, many many in the audience will we want to hear a little bit about your series of, of novels, which, which began with Call Me By Your Name and, um, uh, and ended up with, I suppose, Find Me um, in 2019. And, and your exploration of passion and, to use that old-fashioned word, that um, unrequited love, it's, it's such a clumsy word. It's got to be another <laughs> way of saying that. Um, but, you know, I, I was fascinated also by your exploration of those themes also in terms of a sense of loss um because so much of it was about 
not being able to have something um, and or, or just skirting on the edge of maybe obtaining something but not quite having it. And I wondered whether you also, in, in, in exploring that, that sort of passion um, and, and daring um, exploration of love, um, also reflects a little bit on your identity. It has to. I, I think it, it has to. And uh, because I, I've also have the gumption to ask anyone, are you really happy? And of course, the, the, the answer that I get is, well, not always. Uh, how not always? And, I, and of course, you realize that everybody, everybody, every single human being is condemned to solitude. In one way or another, you come to realize that you are alone. Yes, you have a family. Yes, you might have love. Yes, you do that. But you're fundamentally alone. And that is a thing that I am probably easier. It's easier for me to explore it because I've experienced solitude given the fact that I've been displaced so much. You know, so solitude comes naturally to me. But projecting solitude or that sense of as you call it, unrequited love, or because no love is unrequited. It is always reciprocated somewhat for some time, okay? Uh, and we realize it's unrequited when we realize that it no longer exists. Uh, but I find that the way I made fun of people who say, I live in the present, I'm in a present mood, I'm not in the past, I'm not in the future, the same way that people who say, yes, I, I am happy, I am... You know, I'm in a full-blown relationship. I'm satisfied, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, you realize when you cross-examine them after two or three glasses of whatever it is that you're drinking, you find out that God, I never knew this about so and so, and things come out that you never expected. Even me being suspicious of everybody, th people confide in me all the time, and they tell me things that I would never even have anticipated. But I find out. And eventually I realize that, in a sense, we all live with this sense of, uh, I could have lived a better life. Why didn't I make that decision? Why didn't I go through that road not taken? It is always the road not taken, which we probably would have hated to begin with, but we never took it. And therefore, it beckons us as something that we should have done in the past. But we know we wouldn't have, and if we had to relive the same thing again, we would not have taken that road. And it is this sense of um, sort of being always unhinged on this planet, in time, with other people, constantly unhinged. You're not quite binding. But then I find that everybody is that way. There's not a single person who will tell you after a few drinks, because they need a few drinks, you don't, that they're not happy, or that they're not completely happy, and so on and so forth. Their job, which is supposed to be great, they're not that crazy about it. They wish they could stay home. Do they like home? Not really. And, and so on and so forth. Exactly. Uh, living for the day is an aspiration. It's rarely yes. a reality. Um, I, I wonder, just to bring it back to Homo Realis, and I'm conscious of time, you know, because in in the in the collection of essays, you 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 mention at several points the great writers of the Levantine period, C.P. Cavafy, Constantine Cavafy, the great poet of Alexandria, of course, 
um, uh, the the um, uh, Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, um, and you know the whole literature of that era, which is also was also inflected with the the oncoming sense of loss um, and the and the tremendous um, uh, basking in in the in the environment uh, of tolerance but at the same time recognizing there were limits and i wonder i wonder if that also influenced you i mean particularly kavafi whose poetry is just so it just speaks so much of a particular place where you happen to have been born and of that intersection of society and civilization and the longing um, of a society for civilization and yet never quite obtaining it I, I just I wondered whether that's really an overarching influence for you or, or not. It is. It has been. Um, as I said before, when I discovered memory, as I like to call it, with a capital M, as it were, um, it came to me through various roads. One of those roads, and it was the easiest one, and the one that I trusted the most, was books. So I began reading the Alexandria Quartet. First of all, by resenting anyone who read it in Alexandria. I didn't like people, because it was a bestseller at the time, and everybody was reading it, and I thought, they were, oh, this is frivolous writing. I read the Alexandria Quartet in Rome, when I was already in its condition, which you might call exile, as it were. And in, in, in Rome, I discovered this Alexandria that I never knew existed, principally because it never existed, but it doesn't matter. And in that Durrell book, uh, the whole quartet, which I devoured, uh, and I've read it a couple of times since, um, I discovered also the poetry of Constantine Cavafy. And, so, and then there was E.M. Forster, whom I knew already, and had no idea that he had lived in Alexandria. Well, so a guidebook. A guidebook. Yeah, yes, yeah. and it still is the guidebook, by the way. Uh, and so I, I discovered Alexandria out of Alexandria. And it was a different Alexandria than the one I'd known. My parents seemed to recognize that old Alexandria because they had lived in those, say, those were those years before World War II and just after World War II, which is really the efflorescence of this new Alexandria before nationalism set in. Um, and 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 so they always talked about this multicultural. Um, and as you said, with suspicion in your voice, tolerant Alexandria, uh, what, which is exactly what happens in every society that I have called multicultural, multinational, multi-whatever you want to call it. People live together, they, they congregate together, they work together, they even intermarry, and yet the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic will never get along. And you know this, I'm sure, from personal experience. Uh, the Jew and the Catholic, yes, they may intermarry. They may even go to dinners constantly together. And at the same time, there's always this fundamental suspicion, which is why multiculturalism as a concept is lovely. But I never quite trust it because I know what people say once the door is closed and the guests have left. Oh, these Armenians, they cannot speak French correctly. You know, that sort of thing, which I made fun of in Out of Egypt. Yeah. It, 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 in other words, there's always a sense of, of antagonism between groups that are 
really cohabiting. They are literally cohabiting. And that's a beautiful thing. And I don't think mankind is able to transcend that and totally accept a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-whatever you want to call it, universe. It's a lovely idea. I have never seen it because I know what happens when people shut their doors. Andre, that's that's a wonderful place to end this discussion. And I just want to thank you for... Uh, it's also, I think, very relevant to the context in which this will be shown in Indonesia, where, of course, multiculturalism is an ideal. It's also a flawed concept and it doesn't always work. And yet it also binds the country. And so all that... It has sort of to. Um, um, Thank you very much for... Uh, thank for you. Me. Thank you, Michael. Great I... Um, and, um, you know, I, I hope that we, we will continue to intersect on these themes. And I, I look forward to your to your new writing on Rome. Um, I, I really hope that works out. And it looks like that's going to be very much a pinnacle of, of your recovery of loss, if you like. Um, <laughs> um, thank you for supporting the Yaisan Mudaswari Sasrawati, uh, Saraswati. Uh, patrons program and to the festival's partners who made the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival possible. And do follow at Ubud Writers Festival on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit ubudwritersfestival.com for more information about the program. I hope you enjoy the session and I look forward to being back in Ubud in person next year, inshallah. <laughs>